October 22nd, 1844, was a day of great expectations. William Miller was a Baptist farmer, and he had figured out a way to interpret Daniel 8.14. It's a day that refers to, or a verse that refers to 2,300 days before the sanctuary would be cleansed. And he figured out a way, William Miller figured out a way to interpret this verse that showed him when Jesus would return. You turned each one of those days into a year, and you start with the year 457 BC. What you end up with is Jesus returning, according to Daniel 8.14, somewhere in 1843 or 1844. And throughout that time, different dates were picked, and partly through a process of elimination because some dates passed, they eventually landed on October 22nd, 1844. Day of great expectancy. Thousands of people joined with William Miller. Some came to be known as the Millerites. People waited and they watched. Some gave up their possessions. In view of that day, you don't have to be a great student of history in order to know why the day of great expectations came to be known as the great disappointment. You might be aware of the fact that Jesus didn't actually come back that day. He didn't. And of course, it was deeply disheartening for those who had followed this movement. Henry Emmons was a follower, and he describes his response. He says, I waited all day Tuesday, that was October 22nd, and dear Jesus did not come. I waited all the forenoon of Wednesday, as, as, and was as well in body as I ever was, but after 12 o'clock I began to feel faint, and before dark I needed someone to help me up to my chamber, as my natural strength was leaving me very fast, and I lay prostrate for two days without any pain, sick with disappointment. Proverbs itself says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. And here's a picture of that. Here's somebody looking forward to Jesus coming on a particular day. They're convinced it's going to happen, and it doesn't happen. Now, last week here, as we looked at 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 1 to 11, Peter uh, helped us to see the importance of being ready for the return of Christ. And, and in that text, we were told that we can be, we actually can be ready for it. Paul writes, you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Why not? Because you're imaginative and good at math? No, that's not why. There's a totally different reason. He says, for you are, here's the reason that it won't surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of the light, children of the day. It's not because you're good at math, it's because you know Christ. That's what causes you to be ready when that day comes. Even though, as Jesus told his disciples, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. That might have been a helpful verse for William Miller to spend more time in. Being ready is not a matter of knowing the time and day. Being ready is a matter of knowing Christ. Peter shared that with us last week. The, the hope of the Millerites 
came to be focused more on the timing than on the event itself, which will happen. That produced, that, that shift of focus from uh, event to timing produced not only great disappointment, but great distraction. Thousands of hours of calculating and speculating and distributing literature, and in some cases just sitting and waiting, that could have been spent in normal Christian faithfulness. The same kind of faithfulness that's appropriate a thousand years before Jesus comes back and the day before Jesus comes back. Somebody is said to have asked Martin Luther, what would you do if you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow? His answer is reported to have been, I would plant a tree and pay my taxes. If that's appropriate long before Jesus comes back, it's appropriate today. Normal Christian faithfulness. There is every day as we wait for Jesus to come back, action to do. There is still more, to use Paul, Paul's words, there's still more to excel in. Like what? What do children of the light walk like as we wait for Jesus? Or as I've stolen a title from a well-known pregnancy book, what do you expect when you're expecting? As we wait for Jesus to come back, what should we expect that life would be like? Paul gives us a picture of that as he closes his letter to the Thessalonians, as he closes his first letter. He gives it to us in the form of, of a list. It reads a little bit more like a to-do list than like a typical paragraph that Paul would write. Sometimes Paul does this. So he gives us a list, and yet it's not only a list. It's not just a disjointed list of things that happen to need doing. It serves a little bit like, remember those those dot-to-dot -dot pictures from kids' coloring books when you draw a line between the different dots? And it seems random at first, but when you look at the whole thing, you have a whole picture. And what we have here really is a representative list of what it looks like to live as somebody who trusts in Jesus and to live as somebody who is every day looking forward to his return. Paul does this in a few different, we could say, sections in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 28. First, he's going to say, as you, as, you, as you live in expectancy of Jesus' return, here's how I want you to relate to each other. He does that in verses 12 through 15. How I want you to relate to each other before God. Second, how I want you to relate to God together. That's in verses 16 through 22. Then he essentially says, here's how God relates to you. And he entrusts them together to God in verses 23 through 24. And then even in his final greetings, we see a reflection of this overall theme that's happened throughout 1 Thessalonians, a theme of cooperation, a theme of partnership. You see this three-way partnership between Paul and his evangelist friends that have come to Thessalonica between the evangelists, between the Thessalonians themselves, and between God himself, all working together to accomplish God's purposes. Obviously, God could have done that all by himself. He could have done that by choosing a few elites, like Paul and his friends, perhaps, and sending them out. That's not God's way. God's way is to move his purposes forward through a cooperation between himself and all believers. And it's a great privilege to be a part of that. So 
the picture that gets drawn as we work through this list is, is basically this. Cooperate together with God in the process of Christian growth. Cooperate together with God in the process of Christian growth. Let me read the list first. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 28. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord. As you can imagine, we won't have a lot of time to look at each one of these uh, list items in detail. But what I'd like us to do is follow through it in order, hopefully, to have a picture painted in our mind of what this cooperation together with God in the process of Christian growth looks like. So first, Paul tells the Thessalonians about how to relate to one another before God. Or, in other words, cooperate with one another in the process of Christian growth. It's that peace. He does that in two parts. One is he, he says, I want you to cooperate with your leaders. And then I want you to contribute to this process together. Leaders have a special place to play in this. And everybody has a part to play in it. So he starts with leaders. And he acknowledges the fact that Christians need to be led. As we walk through this process, sometimes a stumbling process, sometimes a slow process, we need people leading us in that process. And so that's one important way that God has accommodated the process for us. He's given us leaders. He refers to them in verse 12 as those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Those who labor among you. It is. It is work. You know, if you've been in ministry leadership of some form, that there is a kind of work, a kind of labor, a kind of toil that you don't necessarily even recognize if you, if you haven't done that before. And it happens in many different forms. Peter, uh, in uh, the Apostle Peter, in his first letter, acknowledges uh, what it takes to genuinely lead. In this case, he's talking to elders. And it's interesting to look at the list of characteristics that he gives them as they go about their leadership. He says, I, I want you to lead. I'm going to read this from, from 1 Peter 5, uh, verse 
I think it's verse 3. I'll find it. Here's how I want you to lead as elders. This is in verses 2 and 3. I, w- I want you to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, and then there's three parts, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So three negatives paired with three positives that need to replace those things. Uh, He says, I don't want you to do this under compulsion. So there's sort of one set of personalities that are going to be prone to do it this way, that are going to say, okay, if I have to, I'll do it. On the other end, there are those who are going to be domineering, who are not going to so much say, okay, if I have to, they're going to say, here's what you have to do. Different personalities are going to be tempted by different things. Right in the middle, there's a temptation that comes with every kind of leader, and that is for shameful gain. Peter takes all those things. He says, as you lead, set aside all the natural ways of being motivated. Don't do it under compulsion. Don't do it for shameful gain. Don't do it by domineering. Instead, do it as a willing, eager example. That takes work. It takes time. It takes patience. It's real work, and it's good work. And Paul says to the Thessalonians, it's done for your good. It's done for your good. So, he says, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Cooperate by honoring those who lead you. So, so how, do you, how do we do that? And there, there are many, many different ways. There's really no end to the possibilities of how to do this. But two things that we should keep in mind. One is, kids, I want you to pay special attention to this. Honor the results of their work. Those who lead you, kids, this includes your Sunday school teachers. Those who lead you are trying to help you get somewhere. They're trying to help you move toward Christ. They're trying to help you grow as a Christian. Some of that work uh, won't be seen until we're all in heaven. Those of us who trust Christ. Some of it you will see today. Sometimes your teacher is going to tell you something that's new, that helps you grow, and you're going to notice, and your teacher needs to hear that. So, so come to your teacher at some point and say, you know what, you, you, told, you taught me this about God, and I never knew it before. I needed to. Uh, they need to know that their work is accomplishing those things. Maybe it's there was, you've taught me something about the Bible that I never knew. Maybe you have changed a little bit. Maybe it's, You've taught me a lot about patience, and uh, I hit my brother a lot less than I used to. So thank you. Your teacher needs to hear that. They need to hear that their work is accomplishing things. And it is. It's accomplishing many things we'll never see, but that's one way to honor their work is by telling them how their work is changing you. Another way to do this, again, this is for all of us, is to join in the aim of their work. As leaders lead, they're trying to help us get somewhere, including in our relationships with each other. Huge priority for Christian leaders is to help Christians to love one another, to live in harmony with one another. As Jesus said, this is how, this is how people know that we are followers of Jesus, by our love for one another. So this is what leaders with right priorities are helping Christians to do together. 
So that's actually where Paul goes next in verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. Seeking to be at peace together is a wonderful way to honor the work of leaders who are taking us there together. That's not always natural. Neither is it always natural, especially for us in our culture, to cooperate with leaders. The the default attitude toward leaders in our culture is not to cooperate, but to question. A leader might be useful if they're doing the things we want them to do, uh, but when they stop doing the things that we want them to do, then we don't vote for them anymore. And Paul's saying, as Christians, we we have something better. We have something better than to treat leaders as either useful and impressive or irrelevant and to be thrown out. Our leaders as believers within the church are taking us further down the road in this process of Christian growth, in our relationships with each other, in our relationship with Christ. And one of the ways for us to honor those leaders is by cooperating with the aim of their leadership. Even when that aim is expressed, as Paul says here, in the form of being admonished, in the form of being corrected, in the form of being told, in this area, you're out of line, and you need to step back in line, and it's good for you, even if it's uncomfortable to hear it. So Paul says, cooperate with your leaders, especially by honoring them. And along with honoring your leaders, cooperating with your leaders, I want you to all do this together. Contributing to the the growth process is not limited to leaders. In some way, it's for each of us. We all need help moving in the right direction. Sometimes we need help moving at all. And the right kind of help at the right time makes all the difference. So there's just one short Densely packed description here in verse 14 that that helps us to, to determine what kind of help is most relevant for any given person at any given time. Because one size of help does not fit all. Listen carefully just to Paul's description here in verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint hearted. Help the weak. Three different kinds of people, or three people in different kinds of life situations. And Paul says what it means to help that person move forward is not always going to be the same. Uh, Some of us are more admonishing kinds of people, and some of us are more kind of encouraging kinds of people. And you've heard it said that if you only have a hammer, then every problem looks like a nail, right? Well, every problem is not a nail, and not every tool is a hammer. Not every person is in the same situation. So you do have some people, Paul says, who are going to be idle. Another way that could be translated is unruly. People who are out of line, uh, people who are not living in a way in some area of their lives uh, that lines up with what God has clearly told us in Scripture. That's not something we want to encourage or help. That's something that needs to be corrected. In the same way, we're going to have some people who are beaten down by life, maybe beaten down by unruly people around them, who are disheartened, who are worn out, who are faint-hearted, and who need to be encouraged. 
who need to have somebody come alongside them and, and, and both care for them and acknowledge the hardship they're going through and also to point them to their reason to be encouraged as well. And then we're going to have some people who have trouble moving at all, who through bodily weakness or some other form of weakness are, are just, just in need of help. They just need somebody to come alongside them. As we move forward together, they may need to be carried for a time. Now, this slows things down, doesn't it? As you have some people running off in the wrong direction and some people whose legs are worn out and some people who can't even carry themselves, if we're going to go there together, it's going to take longer. And that's okay. That's okay. As we make progress, we want to make that progress together. And if it takes longer, that's okay. Because as we'll see later in the passage, God himself is the one who will finish the work. For now, we want to be in the process together. And Paul knows that. And he knows that going there together happens slowly. So he adds an umbrella over all of this. An umbrella over dealing with the idle and the faint-hearted and the weak at the end of verse 14. Be patient with them all. We all need that. We all need to be patient, we all need people to be patient with us. So be asking the question as you're helping other believers to grow and to make progress, one question to ask is, which kind of person am I dealing with now? Is this person unruly? Or are they faint-hearted? Or are they weak? Sometimes there's a combination, but stopping to ask that question can help you to bring timely, relevant help to your brother, to your sister, as we make progress together. Now, sometimes when you acknowledge where somebody is at, you're faced with no choice but to recognize that they're, they're actually beyond unruly and they're actually being evil. Sometimes that's true, and that's what Paul acknowledges next. Verse 15, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. <clears throat> Talk about what sets apart a Christian from a, 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 a nice, moral, non-Christian. Here, here is a, <clears throat> a clear distinction between what a life looks like when that life is lived by faith in Jesus. Repay no one evil for evil, and it's not simply neutral, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. I was talking to a brother this week who had this exact opportunity. This is a brother who was publicly misrepresented. And as you can imagine, when we're publicly misrepresented, he was trying to do something kind and was misrepresented for it and was made out to be unkind. And, and, and you can imagine the impulse there would be to, in some form, to retaliate. Uh, maybe, maybe in a polite form, but still to do it in a way that would, that would cause pain for the person who had caused pain for you. And this brother just shared how, you know, this, this really would have been my, my reflex in the past, but this time I, I prayed for wisdom. I prayed for wisdom. And because he chose to pray for wisdom, instead of retaliating, he left a bridge unburned to do the second half of verse 15, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, it's early in the process for him. This happened recently. We don't know what that opportunity to do good might be for the people 
who did evil to him. It might be his opportunity. It might be the opportunity of another Christian. But that bridge is left intact. To walk back over it at some point, maybe they have a family crisis and this brother has a chance to care for them in a way that at one point they didn't even want. What is that? That that is the kind of miraculous daily Christian faithfulness that happens when we're living in view of Christ's return. It's what to expect when we're expecting Jesus to come back. So Paul says, cooperate with one another, with your leaders and with each other in this process of growth. That's how you relate to one another before God. And then he says, here's how you relate to God together. Here's how you cooperate with God in this process. He really uses two categories in verses 16 through 22. He says, I want you to cooperate with his goodness, and I want you to cooperate with his guidance. He is here for you and with you in this. Cooperate with his goodness and with his guidance. You see his goodness in verses 16 through 18. Uh, maybe in a way that we, we wouldn't recognize on first reading of these short verses. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. How do you read that list? What tone do you hear when you read that list? It's possible for us to read this list and have it sound like this. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Does it ever sound that way to you? Sometimes we can receive it that way. We can almost receive a list like this and, and treat it almost like the expectations of an abusive husband. Be happy, check in with me, and be grateful, or else. Of course, that's not real joy, that's not real dependence, and that's not real gratitude. Now, none of us probably would ever frame it that way, but I wonder if we ever get that tone in our minds as we read this list. What we need to know is these, these short commands, which they are, are not simply rules from God for you. This is the heart of God toward you. This is not simply for what God wants from you. This is what God wants for you. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. God wants for you to rejoice always. He wants for you to be constantly coming to him in prayer. He wants for you to give thanks in all circumstances. This is good for you and reflects the goodness of his heart toward you. When he, when he says rejoice always, this is not a call to ignore hardship and pretend to be happy. To, to not whine and complain so that we don't irritate God and other people. The call isn't to be less realistic about what we're facing. The call is actually to be more realistic. Because there are things that are true of our circumstances that are real, that we can't see, and that we forget. We have things to be happy about all the time. What Jesus has done for us and what Jesus promises to do for us changes everything for us. Those things haven't changed, but so often my own response to them has changed. 
I forget about them. I, I begin to treat my, my normal day-to-day circumstances, like trying to potty train a dog we just got, as, as the thing that defines what my life is all about. And those things are real, but they don't define my life. They are not what has changed my life and what guarantees my future. Jesus has done that. So we always have reason to rejoice. We, we also always have needs in uh, the assignment that God has given us as believers together in the hardships that we face in life. We have an ongoing flow of needs. And, and along with that ongoing flow, we could say over above that ongoing flow, we have a God who never stops listening to our requests. A father who is always, we could say, asking the question, what do you need me to do for you? A father with a generous heart, who's always there, who's rich, who's always ready with the question, what do you need me to do for you? Imagining that question from God that I think really does reflect his heart, that's what keeps us coming back to pray without ceasing. It, it takes discipline. It does. But discipline isn't the thing that brings us back. The thing that brings us back is the heart of God. The open, generous, rich heart that's always ready to give us what we need in our assignment and in our hardship. When you're always answering that question in prayer, Father, here's, here's what I need you to do for me today. As I follow you, as I walk through this difficult world, here's what I need you to do. As you continue to To answer that question in prayer before God, you're constantly setting yourself up. You're constantly preparing yourself to see God providing for the thing you've asked him for. We've we've talked before in the past about how giving thanks is different from saying thanks. Uh, You say thanks when you get a gift, whether it's a gift that you wanted to get or not, right? That's manners. You just do that because it's the nice thing to do. It's something that's focused on the gift. That's saying thanks. That's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's not talking about saying thanks. He's talking about giving thanks. And if you've ever received a gift, whether it was a very small gift or a very large gift, that said to you that the giver knows you and cares for you, and was thinking about you when they bought this gift, not thinking about the obligation to buy a gift. They were thinking about you. They know you. They care for you. Then even when you say thanks, you know you're giving thanks. Maybe you've given a gift to somebody in the past, and you've, you've heard the difference when you recognize that they are truly grateful, not so much because they like the gift, though they do, but because there's a connection between your heart and theirs. They say, I know that you love me. I know that you care for me. There, there is a trust that goes between the heart of the giver and the receiver when we truly give thanks. We always have reason to do that with our Father. We're not simply saying thanks because he demands that we do that. Uh, we're, we're, we're acknowledging that his heart toward us is generous and trustworthy. And so as we see him meet our needs, we are bringing our relationship with him to full circle as, as that overflows in thanksgiving to him. So I'll just stop and ask for a minute. Are any of these things missing for you lately? Rejoicing, asking, thanking, 
Has your demeanor this week, have your words been flavored by confidence that God's care for you in Christ will finish your story? That God's care for you will govern every part of your story? Or, or have you, have I, been giving the power to something else? Saying that there's something else in my life that governs my story, that's at threat of finishing my story badly, so that instead of rejoicing and praying and giving thanks, I'm complaining and taking things into my own hands and uh, trying to control my own life and not being happy as a result. Does anybody need a reminder today about any of these things? As we receive this reminder, let's receive it from the generous heart of our Father that walking in happy, expectant, thankful relationship with the Lord is a picture of the will of God in Christ Jesus for us. That's his heart. That heart is expressed in his goodness. That heart is also expressed in his guidance of us as he works in us. Again, there are some things that are said in verses 19 through 22 that whole books can be written about and have been. We don't have time for that. What I want us to focus on here mainly in a couple minutes is what the text actually says. He says first in verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Here we are in the process of Christian growth together. We're trying to excel still more in love and in faithfulness and in purity of life. And right at the middle of that process, that, that we feel as a labor, right at the middle of that process is God himself and the fulfillment of a promise that God had laid out hundreds of years before he, before he fulfilled it. This is uh, Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. Here's what he says to his people who are sitting in the middle of exile uh, because of their rebellion. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you my spirit who will change your heart and who will make you like me. And now that promise has become a reality. For us, for believers, this is a central promise of this new, what we call a new covenant between God and his people. I will give you my spirit and he will change you. So Paul says, cooperate, take this very seriously. Do not quench the spirit. Do not get in the way of the spirit working to change you. This long awaited gift, follow the spirit as he guides you. What's that guidance about? What, what, what is the aim of the Spirit as he guides us? This, this is something that's probably mysterious for all of us, right? How does the guidance of the Spirit work? We could spend a lot of time answering that question. But Jesus has given us the core of what the work of the Spirit is about in our lives. He's told his disciples, this is in John 16, that the Spirit would guide you into all the truth. And specifically, he says this, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
So God's guidance of us is not mainly about revealing secrets to us. Sometimes he's capable of doing that. He knows how to do that. He will do that if necessary. But it's not mainly about sharing secrets with us. God's guidance of us by his spirit is about shaping us, about causing us to excel still more in Christ-likeness, taking us from one degree of glory to another as we move on that pathway to the day when God will finish that process. And here God himself is doing it by his spirit. Sometimes he does that by communicating, by sending content. Now what we know we have received from him is written here. And in the time of the New Testament, and I think there's an expression of this today as well, God sends content to us. He, he, he sends us things that we need to know for guidance and for insight that apply to our particular situations. Now, there are different views about whether this particular gift of prophecy ended with the New Testament time when the apostles passed on, that gift of prophecy ended. I'm not even going to try to answer that question, uh, but I am going to acknowledge what I think the heart of this passage would call us to, and that is that our Father is intimately involved with our lives, and that our Father has left up to His discretion to let us know things that we need to know, to give us guidance, and to give us insight that are specific to our situation, and that move us in the direction of Christ-likeness. So Paul says, even to the Thessalonians, he says to these New Testament believers, do not despise prophecies. Even as God speaks in a way that sometimes intrudes into your life, receive it openly. And evidently the way that these prophecies worked was they, they happened not simply as a matter of dictation. God sort of speaking from heaven with a voice that everybody could look at and say, wow, we've never seen that happen before. He worked through people. He worked through people in such a way that people could say, I think I have a word from the Lord. And that word from the Lord that seemed to be clear to them was something that needed to be evaluated by other believers. So as a believer would say, well, I think the Lord is impressing something on my heart. Paul would say, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Come together. Sometimes God even gives people specific gifts that allows them to say either, uh, yeah, yeah, that's from God and we need to follow that. Or, no, it's not. Now, in our case, I don't think we have to know when somebody has a sense that I think God is impressing something on my heart. I don't think we have to make a clear distinction about is that a prophecy or is that some other way of God graciously uh, guiding but we can join together to evaluate, does this match with what God has already revealed or not? That's really the first test is when somebody says, I think the Lord is helping me to see something. Uh, does this square with what we've been told? So somebody shows up and says, I'm pretty sure the Lord is telling me that I'm supposed to marry my boyfriend and she's a believer and he's not a believer. Well, God has spoken to that, right? Whether it's uh, a guy or a girl or whoever, God has told us, don't be unequally yoked together. You're free to marry anyone only in the Lord. So does it square with what we've already been told? The other thing that we can ask is, 
what will it do? What will be the results of this, this sense that the Lord is leading me in this unique situation? Will it do what Jesus said the Spirit would do? Will it glorify him? Will it take his things and declare it to us? Will it make us more like Jesus? Or will it lead us further away from his likeness? He's given each one of us his spirit. And so as he leads us, sometimes in ways that are mysterious to us, he intends to do it in a way that is cooperative. So he brings us together and gives us his word. We know he's said this and we can evaluate all things first on the basis of his word and then on the basis of the values of his word. Will this lead us in the direction of being like Christ? Test everything. Hold fast what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Well, it's a lot of work, right? It is. It's a labor. It's a labor for all of us. It is what Paul called early in this letter, a work of faith and a labor of love. And what undergirds all of that work of faith and labor of love is a steadfastness of hope. A hope that looks to God and says, as the psalmist said in Psalm 90, establish the work of our hands. Here we find ourselves to be people who are uh, made of dust, people who try really hard. And sometimes we have those moments when a kid says, I hit my brother less. Thank you for teaching me. And other times we just put one foot in front of the other and keep going. And we don't give up. And we have a promise that when we pray, establish the work of our hands, he will. The God who calls us to cooperate with him is committed to completing what he started in us. And so, in the spirit of cooperation, Paul asks him to and agrees that he will. This is verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is what a true Christian longs for, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I long to be in the place in this life where I'm more like Jesus. And even more than that, I long to be in the place where I will be fully like Jesus. And Paul says, I'm asking God to fulfill that longing in you. And in the end, I know that he will. He is faithful to complete what he started in you. So keep at it. Keep at it in this three-way partnership. And then he reflects that three-way partnership in verses 25 through 28. You even see all three in verse 25. The Thessalonians and the evangelists and God, brothers, pray for us. Cooperate with one another affectionately, greeting one another with a holy kiss. Certainly there would be a variety of different ways of just showing physical affection for one another in ways that that are both appropriate and in ways that reflect the fact that we are a family together, that we are in this process together, including those who are idle, including those who are faint-hearted, including those who are weak. We're moving there together. So as I want you to make sure that everybody hears what I've written, don't leave anybody out. And over all of that, we have the provision of Christ, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
that's the only reason it's possible for any of this kind of dot-to-dot picture to come together and form anything meaningful. This is actually the text that we read earlier. How is it possible that a group of people who have been rebels against God could possibly be shaped in any discernible way into the image of Christ? Titus 2, 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works can be there because we've been bought by Christ for that purpose. We're going to celebrate that together. We're going to celebrate the fact that Christ has bought us and has brought us together as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together in just a moment. First, let me pray. Father, we we do look to you to establish the work of our hands And to establish us, we we hunger uh, and thirst for righteousness. We hunger and thirst to be more like Jesus. So we pray that you would give us strength to help one another through that process, to help us cooperate with your spirit as he guides us into Christ-likeness, to receive all of the provision that you in your goodness and guidance have provided for us. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Connie is going to play, and as she does,